This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger speaks with Dr. Henry Now, professor emeritus at George Washington University and the author of, among other books, Conservative Internationalism, Armed Diplomacy Under Jefferson, Polk, Truman, and Reagan. He also worked on international economic issues on the White House National Security Council under President Reagan. Roger and Henry discussed his recent article in National Review titled, Why Reagan Matters. Dr. Henry Now, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Roger. Thank you. Henry, you're a professor emeritus at George Washington University and the author, among other books, of Conservative Internationalism, Armed Diplomacy Under Jefferson, Polk, Truman, and Reagan, unifying Jefferson and Polk with, uh, and Truman, of course, with Ronald Reagan, perhaps not intuitive to many, but we'll get into that a little bit. You uh, come to this moment not only as a scholar, but also as a veteran of the Reagan administration. Uh, you worked on the White House National Security Council on international economic issues uh, from January 1981 to September 1983. Why don't we start with you telling us how an academic trained in political science uh, got to the Reagan White House. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you, Roger, not only for this opportunity, but also for all you're doing here for the Institute. Now, I say that not only because it's true, but maybe because it'll also make you ask easier questions. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I always, I, my students would often ask that question. And I would tell them, look, it was where preparation met opportunity. And that, I guess, constitutes luck. I was a young faculty member. I had published my first book on nuclear power developments, peaceful nuclear power developments in Europe. Uh, and um, came uh, to Washington to, uh, after an early stint at Williams College uh, to teach. Uh, and then uh, found uh, myself being invited to um, uh, conferences dealing with nuclear power. There I met, uh, at some point, the, um, some of the people who were to serve in the Reagan administration. Uh, even though I disagreed with some aspects, I was not a Reagan supporter in the 1970s. Mm. Uh, we had a chemistry, a certain chemistry, especially Dick Allen and I, who was Reagan's first national security advisor. And so eventually uh, he offered me the position to uh, be on the board of advisors and then on transition teams after Reagan won and finally uh, on the National Security Council in the NSA. So um, it was a, uh, you know opportunity of a lifetime. Uh, I had a fantastic uh, learning experience and uh, felt, uh, you know, in retrospect, obviously feel like th that was a moment when a major contribution was made to the future, yeah, no, be the betterment and the future of the country. No question. That was a consequential period. Of course, you were there from 1981 to 1983 during the buildup, really kind of the, the confrontation period between... Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, Reagan, of course, famously didn't have anybody to speak with. <laughs> they were all dying on him. That is the uh, uh, leaders in the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, but you were focusing on, I get you came to this world because of your work on nukes, but you ended up uh, attending G7 summits and supporting uh, the National Security Council and the Reagan administration that way. Tell us about your work within the National Council and uh, participating right. in no, G7 summits. That's a good point. Yeah, I was working on a book actually in the late 70s on food and energy. 
So I was moving into the economic areas, away from sort of the technology areas. The nuclear book I had done was on peaceful nuclear cooperation in Europe, your atom, mm -hmm. in atomic energy community. So now I started working on sort of elements of uh, the global economy, especially, of course, oil and gas and energy. Uh, and um, that was, um, uh, you know, uh, a lead-in then to sort of what I eventually did in the Reagan administration. I'd become a, a student to some extent of the G7 summits and uh, knew the people in the academic world who were writing about them. Uh, and so I was intrigued by that. Um, I remember when I suggested to Dick Allen that, look, let me handle these international economic issues. He said, well, are you an economist? I said, well, yeah, that's actually in my degree from MIT, <laughs> politics, economics, and science. And so I told him. And he bought it. And he bought it. Because <laughs> you're political scientist so, by training, yeah, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, any, any recollections or moments, the particular summit that stands out in your mind that um, kind of formed your thinking or perhaps was just like a great opportunity for you to be in the room when it happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was the note taker uh, at, at uh, the Versailles summit, and that was a summit that was very confrontational. Uh, when we were unable to reach some agreements, obviously with the allies, uh, the U.S. economy was still in the tank, uh, so to speak. Um, and of course, the Cold War relationships were heating up. Um, so there were lots of differences at that conferences. But in some sense, that conference sort of set summit set the stage for the following summit, the Williamsburg summit, where, in fact, most That's of Reagan's Virginia, where Williamsburg, Virginia, 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 right. um, where most of Reagan's policies began to appear. Um, they, they, for example, issued a declaration uh, affirming the deployment of the intermediate nuclear force missiles in Europe, which was a major step forward in, you know, balancing the situation with the so-called Euro Union. missiles. Yeah. Euro missiles, correct. Um, the economy was beginning to emerge. Um, in the spring of uh, 1983, the economy grew for the first time. So things were beginning to sort of, and, and Williamsburg really did affirm in a very, very important way, almost all of the policies, strategic as well as economic, that Reagan had initiated and for a couple of years, of course, had not seen much progress. So I think the Williamsburg for, summit for me was a real turning point. Uh, and indeed, in retrospect, it remains a key turning point. It just caught my attention as you're reflecting on, on Williamsburg, that at a G7 summit, the subject matter, security matter, like missiles, Euro missiles, uh, would find itself, find that subject in a declaration. And of course, it was a battle uh, for the Reagan administration and President Reagan uh, to get those missiles on the continent. And of course, President Reagan was doing that and other things on the security front, again, to try to position the United States and its allies in a position of strength Correct. so that the United States would have a better shot at, at what Reagan would call you know, a true peace, you know, a real uh, kind of uh, uh, negotiating from a position of strength and, and making sure the, the, the Soviet Union um, would, would kind of engage and negotiate honestly. What was the place of your—why you know, was that not limited to NATO? Why was that something that uh, oh, the G7 summit might— this was the first time that that was done mm -hmm. at an economic summit. So you're right. There was quite a bit of preliminary negotiation and planning that had to take place. 
But Reagan was he insisted upon it. He said, look, these are the countries that matter. We'll include Japan because Japan needs friends in Asia. And in fact, there was an exchange between him and Mitterrand and Nakasone on the uh, patio outside the, the summit meeting at Williamsburg in which uh, Mitterrand was saying to Nakasone that, look, I mean, this is a Europe, this is an economic summit and this is a European, sort of primarily European gathering. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be doing these things that involve you. Well, Nakasone said, wait a minute. We're alone in Asia. We need you here in uh, the summit process. And Reagan was standing there, and 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 Nakasone sort of, you know, Mitterrand sort of made the comment that you know, well, we simply can't include you. And Reagan then said, Oh no, yes, we can because we must pass this. G7 statement on strategic policy involving Japan, because mm -hmm. the, the missiles were linked in Asia sure. and in Europe. Uh, they, by the way, the other thing that was very new about the Williamsburg summit was that it was spontaneous. We had arranged for a whole hour and a half of conversation among the uh, leaders themselves with nobody else in the room. Now, the translators were up in booths oh, outside the room, but, but this only, and they, you know, addressed each other very informally. It was also the first, coming in which, the first summit in which the communique was drafted at the summit. We had no bracketed language going into the summit. Nothing pre-cut. We had a thematic paper where we had simply outlined what the issues were, uh, but the differences, they took the differences with them into the summit, and they resolved those differences in the course of the summit. Fascinating, that story, the way you're talking about you know, Mitterrand, you know, the, the French president, and then Nakasone, the leader in Japan, and how European security issues and issues in Asia you know, were, were linked, of course, today— as we think about dealing with, well, perhaps obvious or maybe not, you know, we have a debate over the United States role, and we'll get to this in a little bit in, uh, in terms of conservative internationalism, but how we should respond to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And there's uh, uh, some very influential voices that really want to limit, as you know, Henry, the U.S. role in Europe because they want the U.S. to focus on Asia. And then there's a counter argument, which I subscribe to, and I imagine you do as well, that the U.S. needs to be present and leading in both, and 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 security is linked in both. If you're absent in one, not only will it, of course, that um, be a risk for us in that region, but actually it undermines our ability to be effective in another region. I mean, it's just it, yeah, you no, know, I, that, that little anecdote about France, you know, France and Japan kind of jumps out, to, jumps out at me. That was the beginning of the unification of the free countries, Asia and Europe. And I think I agree with you completely. We need to deal with issues in both regions simultaneously. Now, I do believe that what we ought to try to do is to get the European allies to take the lead in Europe. Yes. And yeah. back them up. Right. They have to take the lead. And then we take the lead in Asia, uh, where we're already focusing primarily on China, and they back I saw the UK-Australian nuclear submarine pact, for example, right, right. is an example of that. Right, right. And we, we have to keep an even hand, I think, between the European region and the Asian region. To designate one as more important than the other, I think, would undermine uh, would undermine freedom. Yeah, well, you mentioned AUKUS. That's, that, that's a huge uh, development out in terms of Asian security. But um, in, in, in NATO, of course, one of the big uh, developments uh, since— the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, of course, is 
you have Finland and Sweden's yeah. ascension to NATO. You have some conservatives. Actually, it turned out in the Senate vote, only one or two. One didn't vote. One voted against. But a pretty strong vote across the board, bipartisan amongst Republicans supporting that, which, again, I think certainly we look at Finland and NATO. Those are two countries that really do invest uh, in their defense and strengthens NATO. How do, how do you see that? Well, this is a major, uh, I think, uh, turning point or not turning point, but just a Rubicon that uh, the NATO countries have mm -hmm. crossed uh, because, I mean, for 75 years where you've had uh, Finland and Sweden uh, maintaining a neutral position, um, this has to be registered in the Kremlin as a severe setback. Huge loss. And right? largely yeah. because of their, you know, uh, aggressive uh, behavior without any real rationale behind it. I mean, not only has Putin done something that's hard to explain, he hasn't tried to explain it, except in terms of this idea that NATO threatens, threatens them. Well, I mean, exactly what territory was NATO about? To see? <laughs> we invaded, yeah. Uh, there wasn't right. any such. And if it, we threaten him, that is, if NATO countries threaten Russia because we're free and his country isn't, there's nothing we can do about that. We have to just stand up to that confrontation. Uh, and um, but yeah, and, and the other point there's a conservative con concern about you know the United States carrying too much of the burden. You know there needs to be more burden sharing when it comes to Finland and Sweden. Yeah. These yeah. are countries that Very well even good. though have they have not been part of NATO, they've been, maybe for that reason they've invested significantly yes. in their defense and so and their border countries. Well, yeah, which yeah. means that they're going to be putting troops on the border, which is exactly where you need. It took us a long time to get the Germans, in particular, to kind of do that yeah. after the after the right after well, World War II. Great point. We'll probably jump back to this. We talk about conservative internationalism today, something that you've been writing and thinking about and really leading on for a long time. But I want to jump to a piece you recently wrote in National Review, one that uh, caught our attention. Um, once I read the title, it'll be obvious why. The title is Why Reagan Matters. Henry, explain to us why you chose to use this moment in time to give a, a really thorough, um, I don't quite say defense, but argument for why Reagan matters. And it's uh, an argument that covers the landscape both from domestic politics uh, all the way to, you know, kind of foreign policy and national security. Uh, outline the, the, the rationale. Well, give us the rationale for running in the, and the, the argument. You know, for some time now, as uh, the decades have passed since Reagan, I have been arguing that there were two transformative presidents in the 20th century, and, and it becomes clearer and clearer as the decades move on. They are, in fact, Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan. Uh, and they did similar things. I mean, you can maybe still argue that Roosevelt faced the, the more difficult circumstances, but they won a war, one of mm -hmm. them a hot war, the other a cold war. Uh, they took an economy that was in a deep depression or recession. And by the way, that's still the worst recession we've had since the deep depression that Reagan confronted in the early 1980s. Lifted the country to victory in both of those areas, turned the world economy around, and then renewed America's faith and confidence in itself. Mm -hmm. um, the the two of them, they, they ushered in eras of sort of the liberal American kind of uh, vision of who we are, and then with Reagan the conservative. Both, by the way, a part of the republic that was founded in the early, uh, in, the, in the late uh, 1700s. So it seemed to me that um, one wants to understand for many years, by the way, I've been frustrated by the fact that the conservatives have had no um, 
legacy, like the Roosevelt legacy. Uh, and we've had, we haven't cultivated that. And now we have a chance to cultivate that with Reagan because he did these very significant things, by the way, also got his own party reelected after he left office. Right, right. Two presidents to do that in the 20th century. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, Reagan did three things, basically. I'll just outline, yeah, outline the argument. details. Um, he first demonstrated how you unite the Republican Party and bring the Republican Party into power uh, after a long period of not being in power. People forget that. I mean, the Republicans were always a minority party throughout most of the 20th century. Uh, and he brought them back. Um, and believe me, that's pretty relevant to today, it seems to me. We have to be thinking about how we can unite these different elements that constitute the conservative or the Republican uh, Party. Um, secondly— That's he, one reason why he matters now. Because that's he, why he matters he now. He needs to unite the party, yep. and, and that's you know, there was a there. He had this wonderful sort of um, aphorism that he always, uh, you know, uh, uttered, namely that um, don't speak evil of another Republican. Uh, he was trying to contend with what were severe divisions in the Republican Party at that time, and he did it very well. I mean, he basically would always say to people, look, I don't—when when a group supports me, I'm not supporting their policies. They're supporting my yeah. policies. And so he had this big tent sort of vision of where the Republican Party could go. And by the way, a big tent vision of a conservative America. He said, you know, if we just understand that America is a conservative country, I mean, we're 60 percent, 65 percent of the voters out there, and behave that way, we'll be a majority party. You're talking about Reagan Democrats. I'm talking about the Reagan yeah. Democrats. That's correct. All right, so unity. That was one reason why it matters. Yes. Two is, the, of course, the way he, he approached the Cold War. Um, for him, it was very important. The ideological confrontation was very important. I mean, Reagan saw the world in terms of good and evil, and he certainly believed that free societies were good and that the authoritarian, totalitarian societies were evil. And he understood that that confrontation would have to be resolved eventually in one direction or the other. We right. win, they lose. Now, he didn't mean that by military means, uh, but he did understand that you had to build up your military in order to make sure that the Soviet Union couldn't obtain its objectives outside the negotiations. Now they would go into the negotiations seriously. Right. And he, he, he brought that off just perfectly, it seems to me. He also didn't just he wasn't just interested in stability and coexistence with the Soviet Union. He wanted to move that needle towards freedom. Uh, and that was a difference, I think, especially with Richard Nixon, for example, and maybe the Kissinger wing of the party. Uh, but he did this thoughtfully. He did it incrementally. I don't think he even envisioned 63 countries becoming right. democratic after the end of the Cold War. And why does that matter today? Yeah, because we are now facing, once again, the resurgence of China, authoritarian uh, governments in okay. the world who have a very different approach to their own people, let alone to the people of the world. It's now represented even perhaps more seriously in China than in Russia. But the two of them together now represent, I think, a significant challenge for the United States and bring these two regions together. I want to get back to the unity in a second, but let's just— Go to the third. Right. I want to uh, go the double back. The economic yeah. reformation uh, that uh, he brought about. Um, I mean, the economy was in bad shape in the 1970s. Uh, that was, in fact, the deepest recession we've had since the Great Depression in the 1930s. Uh, he turned that all around. He turned it around by providing a viable uh, alternative to the Keynesian alternative, which was a tax and spend policy, right. uh, regulate 
he really gave, the, he moved the country and he told the country that, look, we can do this with uh, policies that cut taxes, that, that restrain the, the, the supply of money, uh, that um, ultimately over time will bring growth, substantial growth, and eventually will also pay for itself. Now, that was a very controversial argument in the early 1980s, but you know the way it turned out? That's exactly what happened. In effect, the, the, money, that, the money that Reagan spent on defense in the 1980s led to the end of the Cold War, which then produced a tremendous peace dividend in the 1990s, which is primarily responsible for the uh, uh, for the budget surpluses that we achieved. So he almost, he got all of the different pieces. He got the monetary restraint, which controlled inflation. He got the uh, tax cut uh, approach, by the way, which gives the American people the chance to decide mm -hmm. uh, how to spend money rather than the Congress and special interest groups. That was why tax cuts were always you know, in Reagan's mind, by the way, he talks about them in the 1940s, uh, because it was for him the, 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 the way of free choice for the American people to allocate resources rather than always do that through government where, you know, the legislature and most importantly, special interest yeah. groups are going to dominate. Just on that point, I mean, Reagan, President Reagan was um, unlike a lot of the political leaders we see today in the sense that this was not uh, the voice that looked to demonize the other. Yes, yes. But— if there was one place where President Reagan, you know, engaged in that in that rhetoric of attack and and capturing everything in terms of what the you know your opponent is doing wrong, it was bureaucracy. It was bureaucracy. <laughs> it was government. government. Right? It was central government, which uh, you know that and that that was a part of his approach from the very beginning. He worried, even as a Democrat, what in the 30s and 40s, uh, that the central government was going to overreach. Uh, and that that was a threat to freedom. Uh, we had to always be aware of that. Uh, so let, let, let's work on each of these backwards. So you, you had left off with, you know, this uh, the economy and, and, and the reform uh, that took place, uh, remarkable reform during his uh, his presidency. And it was all tied to freedom, individual freedom. You know, within the conservative movement, there is a number of, of, of voices that really have um, emphasize less on the individual freedom mm -hmm. and focus far more on kind of what they call common good conservatism. Right. And, and, and here the, it's, it's really tied to how much we let the market kind of operate on its own versus should we uh, be informing and kind of managing the market. So it's, it's, it's providing so-called for the, for the common good. How, how do you see kind of these uh, arguments departing, if at all, from, you know, what you're describing here, why Reagan matters. Right. Well, look, the core of his philosophy was freedom of individual choice. He wanted to do everything he could to make sure that the American people made decisions and had always had alternatives uh, in front of them. Now, uh, that was—that um, um, applied uh, in, in his thinking about tax policies. Uh, it applied in his thinking about deregulation. Uh, it applied across the board. He didn't stop with individualism. Mm. He didn't say, hey, look, the, the purpose of life is just to be a free individual. No, he, he emphasized the importance of that free individual being marinated, you could say, mm. in, the, um, in, the, in the traditions of faith and of, um, you know, our heritage, that is our historical heritage, marinated in the competitive uh, realities of the marketplace, um, and by the way, 
educated uh, by uh, you know learning about how the world works and and, and making our judge our choices on a solid basis so the common good emerged from the choices of individuals in Reagan's point of view there was always a common good this idea that he was all for robust and you know, individualism and that he believed in the wealthy and not the poor I mean this is a, a, a terrible travesty really of Reagan's philosophy he he wanted that individual to be as free as possible but that individual now would naturally because we are not islands right. would choose to be parts of communities but you would want them to choose those communities and if they want to leave those communities and government's role then yeah government's role was in six, was to preserve the basic rules of the system in the declaration and the constitution but not to determine what's good for the, no, the good of community exactly the never to become so overweening that it could influence these decisions and 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 allow only one decision do you fear republicans are departing from this outlook what do you well right now? yeah um I look. I mean, we're having an, a, a, a good internal debate, which I think is important. Um, but we need to recognize the major differences that we have together, with respect to the Liberal Party in our society. And there, we are all in, you know, agreement that the government has got to be, uh, you know, restrained, and and we have to conduct that our politics within the framework of the Constitution, checks and balances. So I think that, you know, and that's where we differ, by the way. Over the years, we've always had this battle between the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians. Right. Uh, one wanting a more activist government, the other paying more attention to civil society and trying to maintain as much freedom in the civil society as possible. So I think those groups are still there. We need to bring them together. That's going to take leadership. Uh, hopefully there's somebody out there like Ronald Reagan who can make us realize that we need each other. You don't want freedom without, you know, an anchor in faith and tradition uh, and, you, and, and, and in the Constitution. Uh, and of course, you also don't want, um, you know, freedom of choice uh, in a libertarian sense, where all you care about is your pleasure and not the future of the society. All right, let's move on to the second one, the ideological component, um, which of course takes us to the international arena. And, and, and when you look at China today and you look at the responses that you see in political circles and policy circles, there is a camp that is kind of got heightened sensitivity and looks at the Chinese Communist Party. Don't look beyond recent events when the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, traveled to Taiwan and you had this unbelievable, you know, ag kind of aggressive militaristic response by the Chinese. And those those folks will say, "Hey, we this is an adversary. The national security community is there." And then you have others who say, "Listen, look at the economy." Look at this integrated economy, largest trading partner, hundreds of billions of dollars transacted in each direction annually. This is not the Soviet Union. This is not the 1980s. Henry, how, how do you kind of look at the ideological element uh, that, you know, is what your argument here is that why Reagan matters today and then apply it to the real complex challenge that is China. And here I've set it up, you know, you have the security component, which seems quite clear they're an adversary, but the economic side, you know, they're, they're stealing and, and manipulating and all that. But, you know, Americans, American companies are really benefiting. Yeah. Yeah. No, China is an economic power. Uh, 
the Soviet Union was never really an right. economic power. Right. Now, they're, they're both— Was that known, though? I mean, was that, the, that, that we know that now, yeah. but in the 1960s and the 70s— No, by the way, in the— Wouldn't we, 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 we have said that? Point. No, no. In fact, the intelligence community was saying exactly the opposite yeah. in the 1970s. They were saying, in fact, that the Soviets were passing us, that their, you know, approach, central government approach somehow or other was doing better. That, that only became kind of orthodox or, or kind of the consensus later in the Reagan administration, right? Yeah. yeah. At, at the earliest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, exactly. that's something else I've been thinking about because we tend to just say, oh, the, 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 the China problem is far more complex than the— We lose confidence in ourselves, and we lost confidence in ourselves in the 1970s. When we do that, then we, I think, exaggerate the potential of the adversary. Anyway, and even though the Soviet Union was declining now, right, we know, right. throughout that decade, we saw this monster emerging. Now, there's some lesson in there, though, for China. Mm. Yes, China is an economic power, but it's not 10 feet tall. And uh, it has a domestic system which is very inefficient. It has become powerful and it has become competitive, productive through the global economy. Right. The very global economy, open and competitive, that they now want to trash, that they now want to change. And I think they're going to, we're going to see a slowdown and eventually a decline of the growth of Chinese economic power. If we re retain confidence in our own system and make sure that we're clearing away a lot of the barnacles and so on that might otherwise prevent our uh, economic growth. But if we do the right things at home, if we can master, you know, continued growth, get a hold of this whole inflation problem that we face, uh, maintain free trade, by the way, with our allies, because that was crucial right. in winning the Cold War, and then wait patiently uh, while also dealing with the Chinese, building up our military capabilities to confront, that is, to establish the balance of power, as we did with the Soviet Union, um, and, and then wait for a, an opportune moment, which I think is coming when the Chinese are going to be much more willing to negotiate, because they will see that they're not moving forward, as they uh, might expect, in, in the economic arena or, indeed, in the strategic arena. But the ideological component has applied. I mean, the, the is... Yes. Surely from your, your article and, and our discussions, it's ultimately this is a country that at its root is yeah. not free, no. is, it's, you know, it, 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 it's an oppressive regime, essentially right. uh, run um, that Reagan, if, and I'm sure, you know, you, you can expand this, would look at it as this is unnatural. Yes, 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 yes. It's a it's bizarre you know, he remember he referred to the Soviet Union as kind of a bizarre chapter in history. I, I think he would have the same view about China. Not that the people aren't great and that the history of the country isn't great and that eventually, you know, China is going to make its way into uh, the world as a full partner. But to get there, they're going to have to, uh, you know, they're going to have to give their people more freedom. But, but, and, but that, that obviously is their greatest concern. That's that's part, if not the whole reason why that little island, um, you know, that, that they want, they lay claim to bothers them so much because it is a living testament that Chinese people can live free and prosper. 
It's a living testament that there's an alternative, say. Yeah. And, of course, that's the definition of freedom. Yeah. Freedom of choice, you have to have the alternative. Now, they're desperately trying to eliminate that alternative. Yeah. Uh, I think we've got to stay strong. We've got to really think through more carefully, I think, our defense strategy in Asia, because we're now going to deter by sea and air Mm -hmm. rather Mm -hmm. than by land, which Mm -hmm. we did in the cold. In Europe, yeah, sure. Uh, And draw upon, it's very important for us to remember, draw upon our allies now. We're all strong, powerful, democratic societies. Um, uh, you know, uh, maybe some pre- some recent presidents have put a lot of pressure on uh, the Europeans to spend more on defense. They're now doing it under the shadow of uh, Ukraine. And I think we have to sustain that. We really have to push that because that's that's the only basis on which the American people are going to continue to support a global role for the United States. Otherwise, we're going to succumb to this movement that exists out there that wants to pull America back. Oh, there's no question that the neo-isolationist movement, which are voices within the Republican Party, you know, is fueled by pointing out partners and allies that are not adequately investing, right, and, and this free rider problem. But going back to China, uh, it wasn't in our prepared script, but I'm curious to get your view on this. Because the Taiwan case is, is is quite interesting, using your kind of why Reagan matters framework here. Um, in fact, you look back and, and and President Reagan during the campaign in 1980, mm-hmm. uh, some people view he stumbled on the Taiwan question because the Taiwan Relations Act had only recently been passed. But if you look at the transcripts, it was President Reagan really struggling not to be with a side that was free. And I don't, not that I've seen him say it as much, but it kind of reads this way that he probably didn't feel like there was much value in this so-called strategic ambiguity that, of course, yeah. defined the relationship then and continues to this day, some believe, uh, ineffectively to define the U.S. relationship uh, with Taiwan today. Well, you know, the big change, really, that took place in Taiwan between the 70s and the 90s was, of course, the emergence of democracy. I mean, it yep. was a military dictatorship yep. during most of the Cold War. And then Reagan was one, of course, who said, wait a minute, we need them in order to confront communism, all right, both in China and in the Soviet Union at that point, especially in the Soviet Union. And so we're not going to have a saliva test for whether they're free or not. Right. But the interesting thing is, just as we did in South Korea, that is, our influence in those countries eventually enabled them to come up with their own uh, kind of democracy. Now there is a Chinese model of democracy in the region. And that really bothers, uh, you know, Beijing and, uh, and, and leads to their determination to try to do something about Taiwan. But the ideological component, Henry, though, as it applies to, if, if you apply it today, would that not lead you and others to say, okay, well, we must stand with Taiwan? The strategic ambiguity is not working for us, and it's not working for free people. And ultimately, only you know, China's unambiguous here. <laughs> they, yeah, they're quite clear. Yeah, that's right, and that's the way I think Reagan would see it, because there is now a thriving democracy in Taiwan, and we want these issues to be resolved peacefully. I mean, we're not, uh, you know, in the end, if the Taiwanese people decide uh, freely uh, to, to, to join the mainland, I, I think that was something we, we've pledged ourselves to accept. Well, I mean, without now, that won't happen, obviously, yeah, yeah. until the Chinese uh, uh, loosen up internally on the mainland, and they seem to be marching in exactly the opposite direction. No, look, I mean, Reagan... From the very beginning, even as a young man, he was he was focused on, you know, on a world in which there was a spiritual battle going on, almost 
continuously. And I think he, he always said, you know, you're going to have to fight for freedom every generation. It's not anything you can just assume will be passed on. So he saw the world in terms of that kind of an ideological struggle. He would clearly be focused on the authoritarian character of these regimes, pointing out that that's what makes them afraid of us and makes us afraid of them. We represent two totally different political systems, uh, and we're going to have to resolve this, by the way, incrementally, by persuading the Chinese to loosen up. They don't have to become Western, uh, but nevertheless to modernize to the point and to liberalize to the point where they can be a peaceful Well, that uh, experiment, of partner. course, you know, it failed. It was what we tried to do, um, you know, throughout the end of the 20th century and, and the start of this century. And—, and with the, with the Chinese, we gave them every chance. Oh, no, no, no. WTO ascension and the rest. Um, but it is it is interesting, you know, the, the Reagan's language in terms of it's something every generation needs to fight for. Uh, you know, for for a while, right? I mean, that yes. you know, he said it throughout. I think it's from the time you know, he did from the very rule, beginning. Uh, perhaps even before is in, I'm, I'm not talking about presidential inaugural. I'm talking about uh, his gubernatorial inaugural address. Uh, but for a, a period of time here, we thought, oh, that that was a, a thing of the past. And then uh, with a vengeance, aut autocracies have emerged and, and we see the threat uh, to freedom. I see you pulling for a quote it, there. Yeah, I am. I, have up your sleeve. <laughs> I am actually uh, just uh, just a very quick one in China. Now, this is something he said in what, 19. Did he, he went to China, I think, in 88. Or yeah, that's right. 87, 88. Here's what he said. Just quote, our entire system talking about the U.S. system is founded on the appreciation of the special genius of each individual and of his special right to make his own decisions and lead his own life. There he laid it down. I mean, directly for them. I love he that. Said that, the that, same. That's very similar in, in Beijing. I mean, in it, Moscow. It, it, the, the speech in China, which uh, I want to say was it was it in university, I believe, yes. where he gave it. So subversive in a subtle way, in a sense. Yeah. The other, Talking to the next generation. Correct, and and, and said something to effective in America. The yep. people rule. Yep. Not the party. He said you've got to give that individual freedom because that's the source of productivity. That's the source of growth. That's the source of strength. Oh, and he also said. You have to have the trust of your government. Your government has to trust in you, all right, give, to give you the lead. Uh, we the people. You we know? the people. Let's go to that. Uh, the, the, the first of the three pieces in terms of why Reagan matters, your article in, in National Review that came out uh, recently is on unity, that Reagan was able to unify uh, an otherwise fractured party and uh, a country mm -hmm. uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Unity do you is do something that? that eludes us today. So, so it, it, the, the the Republican Party, you have, you know, people who want to see President Trump, real, you know, back in office. You have people who want to move on from Trump or Trump supporters. You have people who, you know, were never Trumpers, and that's just on the Trump side of it. You forget uh, about the various issue sets, you know, between common good conservatives and, you know, the market fundamentalists and libertarians. What, what's the recipe you think that could still be kind of used today? You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I think the only thing that ultimately can unite the Republicans, as in fact is true of the country as a whole, is a set of ideas. You know, Reagan wrestled for a long time with trying to get his approach his conservative philosophical approach 
organized. I mean, in the 60s, he, all these speeches he gave, he was constantly working to try to express the American conservative point of view, both domestic and foreign policy, in a way that embraced that 60, 65% of the American people who at the bottom, at, at, at the heart, were in fact conservatives. And I, you know, I'm looking for that in another candidate because it's the issues we need to be concerned about. And yes, there are going to be, you know, candidates associated with this or that group, but we need to be sure that we're addressing the issues that are raised by every one of these groups. And I must say that the populist, you could say the Trump base of the American party, they raise some very good issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are right on target when they worry about, uh, you know, a, a slow economy that that where we're taxed over and over again. They understand that we've got to have growth if we're going to. Uh, and so they applauded, for example, uh, Trump's uh, tax cut program. Uh, they applauded what he did in the alliance by making sure that the allies understood that they must come up with more uh, help for themselves before they can expect our help. Uh, he did a great job on the border, even though it was, you know, you could argue a clumsy and a critical, I mean, a very controversial way. He stopped the flow of mm -hmm. immigrants. Um, he, of course, appointed very, very, I mean, outstanding judges, just incredibly outstanding judges to the Supreme Court. Uh, so th those are issues that the base cares about, and it seems to me the Republicans have to address. Now, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, somebody ought to go and study Reagan. This is why Reagan matters, because he had to maneuver through these same he had to maneuver between the Goldwater wing and the Rockefeller wing mm -hmm. of the party. And, and those splits were just as, you know, tough, just as difficult in those period, in that period of time, as, as these are today. So I'm hoping, you know, that, that, that that's, it can only be done with ideas. It's going to have to be an inspirational view of America that draws all of these elements together. You won't get, you won't, you know, Reagan was very clear about that. He says, I'm not going to agree with everything that they want, and they're not going to agree with everything I want, but they're going to be on board. So do you... Am I to take from this that whereas Reaganism led, you know, had a recipe for unifying the party and resulting in the, in the politics of addition, right? So you have a mandate um, measured by not just the electoral college vote, but the popular vote, but but really strong majorities obviously started at the House and then Senate for a bit. Do you not believe that Trumpism mm -hmm. could lead to the same results? Is it, is it the view that, hey, 75% of Republicans support Donald Trump, but that doesn't translate into over 50% of the country supporting uh, President Trump? Is, is that is that the ultimate concern here, why you kind of harken back to Reagan and not, you know, Reaganism, not to Trumpism? You've got to do what Reagan did. That is, you've got to create and sustain a majority. And in Reagan's case, you have to do it for a couple of decades, I mean, a couple of, uh, you know, cycles. Uh, for an entire decade, roughly. And of course, Reagan's influence persisted for another couple, another two or three decades. It's still evident today. So that's, I mean, I mean, I, you could say, look, in the end, it's the American people who decide whether you're on track or not. And, um, uh, you know, Trump, unfortunately, wasn't reelected uh, and didn't get a popular majority. So we got to do a better job if we want to bring the country along with us. Uh, and so I think that's got to be in the minds of all of the different elements, but most importantly, in the mind of the person who eventually leads the country. Let's uh, let's go to one kind of fissure within the conservative movement, Republican Party, and one that um, you've been a leading voice on, and that is conservative internationalism. You, you have seen the emergence of those 
not quite, you know, I, I put them as neo-isolationists, they are restrainers, I mean, they're different ways, you know, different camps, but they all seem to be concerned about the United States and conservatives in particular supporting a notion of internationalism. You wrote a book on this. Tell us a bit about what conservative internationalism means and how you see different elements in the party reacting to conservative internationalist parties. And I think of it just as a Reaganite foreign policy. But right, right. Well, I mean, look, um, Reagan had an, a, a, an understanding of America embedded in ideas um, and um, conservative ideas. Um, that is that the country started something two centuries ago, two and a half centuries ago, started something that had never been tried before. That is to establish a republic of self-governing individuals. Uh, mind you, there were only two countries liberalizing at that time. That is in the 18th century. That was Britain and and Holland. And 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 they, and those countries, less than 5% of the people actually participated, actually voted. In our first elections, 40% of the white male propertied, all right, uh, citizens voted. Huge jump. Mm. And so here we were as a, a, a country that was trying something totally new without a monarch, without a, a state church, without even a common history because the colonies had sort of dealt with England individually. Uh, and, and, and I think Reagan understood that. And we've been now moving that country all right, forward through a civil war and all kinds of difficulties. Uh, but for the purpose of showing that this is a viable system of government uh, that can apply elsewhere and that our we can't exist really in the world without realizing that. This is what I think Reagan meant by a shining city on the hill, and, an and, example, okay? And that was a 20th century informed that, right? That, we saw this through World War II. Absolutely, right? absolutely. I mean, that's where it took us. That's when we moved as a powerful country. We moved into the international system as a major player. Now, I think that still applies. I mean, we've had enormous success in all of the countries that have become democratic. Notice they don't go to war with one another to resolve their disputes. Um, I mean, it's a much, much better world than it was 100 years ago. Think about that. I mean, Americans, I don't think, understand that. But think about what Europe was like 100 years ago with all the wars that were going on. Uh, similarly, in Asia, it's a much better world, even though it's going to be difficult uh, for us. Uh, but so that was the conservative. Look, the nature of America is conservative in Reagan's view. And it being a shining city on the hill, it's a lot more than just a piece of territory or just a piece of geostrategic uh, you know, uh, 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 balance of power, balance you know, of power right? in the whole it, works. It's, it's trying in in a non-interventionist way because yeah. I know I know you're reticent to you know employ you, military and, and force to realize these outcomes, but but at the same time, U.S. leadership and, and proudly promoting our system of government and, and, and the plight of free peoples should be at the heart of our foreign policy. Absolutely. I mean, it has to be. And it's well, not that we, it's <laughs> not to be, well, it has to be simply because we aren't united by anything other than our system of government. That's what, in fact, unites us. And now we're on that hill where everybody is saying, hey, well, can this thing survive? Is it doing well? Is that kind of a republicanism or democracy? Is it doing well in the world or not? I think the world is going to go with, you know, the flow, so to speak. And in that sense, America is the pivot. Well, it only does well unless America is doing well and, yeah. and, and behind. Well, correct. I Do mean, you, obviously. Are you concerned that conservatives, uh, I mean, you've seen many cycles and, um, you know, candidates and votes uh, and movements within the conservative movement over the years. Do you feel like we're at a moment where conservative internationalism is, is at risk? 
Yeah, I mean, to some extent, because we are cycling. We're cycling away from the overreach, which we got involved in Iraq, as a result of 9-11. We've done this historically. It's completely understandable, even though regrettable, I suppose, um, that we then over, in other words, to 9-11, we overreacted clearly to some extent. We got involved in these so-called forever wars. Um, but look, we've always corrected from that, too, in the past. And, and I th well, it's the over although, but it's the overcorrection that's yeah, I know I know and yeah. and at the moment it appears as though uh, there is uh, in contrast let's say to Reagan's time there is much more support for this idea of pulling back uh, this idea of letting the allies now who are strong and powerful let them take care of themselves why do we need to always be involved and I think we're going to have to demonstrate to the American people that in fact the allies are working with us and that they're putting some real you know resources at stake including lives at stake so that's going to be very important in terms of conservative foreign policy don't get out in front of the allies don't right. get in out in front of the allies make sure that they they put at least 50 percent, I suggest that, as a uh, reasonable sort of metric. Uh, we have roughly, uh, I think, 70 percent of the defense expenditures now. Right. And we have only 50 percent of the GDP of the free world. Well, look, that's a metric we ought to work for towards in the next 50 years. And the American people will go along with that. See, they will understand that, well, now we're saying, OK, we've, we've, we're on this republic. We're, we're on trial constantly in the world. We have, however, now a lot of very strong allies. Uh, and we're going to work with them, and they're going to work with us uh, to sustain uh, so a make, role in the world. We need to make a sure. role in the world that is that is um, moderate, that is limited, that only goes with other people into uh, the you know a, a defensive but, freedom, but not leading from behind. Not leading from behind. Now, do you think Chancellor Schultz will uh, take up your charge? That uh, you know, look, I mean, I've been fifty percent of the expenditures. The fact that Germany has also seemed to cross, at least put their toes in the water of the Rubicon. <laughs> I mean, they, they're always it took, it took the largest war in right. Europe since World they're War. They're always ready to pull back. A lot is. I think we ought to make sure the Germans understand that we're counting on them, and the world is counting on them. And this is their chance to kind of really demonstrate that they are the center of a Europe whole and free. And a Europe hold and free that's determined to remain free. Well, we shall see. As, as, as they say, we're in a moment we're going to get to our lightning round where we'll ask Professor Henry now to share with us his favorite book on Reagan. It could be one of your own. Uh, uh, Reagan quote, Reagan's speech. Uh, but you just laid it out for us, but I want to kind of put a finer point. You get uh, a Republican presidential hopeful that calls you up, Henry, and they say, okay, um, I'm, I'm seeking the nomination and I want to wrap myself in conservative internationalism, a Reaganite foreign policy. What do I say? What are, what are the one, two, three things I should push for? Clearly, burden sharing with allies, I imagine, will be one of them. And you'll throw the, the metric of 50% uh, commitment to security because we're 50% of world GDP. What else? Um, maintain open markets and competition among free countries. That's very important. I know there's an unhappiness with what's happened with China in terms of trade relations. It hasn't seemed to work. But that's because China is an authoritarian society. Our allies are all free societies. And when you practice open trade with them, you give consumers greater choice which is the nature of freedom. So free trade agreements should be okay. A free trade agreement. There ought to be a new rubric, by the way, for those free trade agreements. Reciprocity, mm -hmm. all right? Not sweetheart deals, 
all right, where they give us support on the strategic side and we give them special benefits on the economic side. I think that era is over. All right. So, no, and you can't give them, you can't allow for subsidies. It's got to no, be free. Okay. No, they've got to do it. Or if they have subsidies, we have subsidies. In other words, you're going you're gonna to match them in terms of your access to their market it has to be the same as their access to our market. I mean, even the Trump administration did this, USMCA, right? Which is yeah, no, they, after well, Trump, kind of up he renegotiated these agreements. I thought that was very appropriate. By the way, most of the new agreements have, have, have survived, right. and most people right. think they're pretty good. So, uh, you know, that's that's something that's that we point. have to emphasize. Right. Uh, you do not trade with adversaries. Don't trade with adversaries. Get free, free trade agreements with allies. That means we have to unravel a lot of our interdependence with uh, China. China, by the way, is doing it for us. Well, the decoupling is mean, happening. Yep, it's the, decoupling the is happening. Deglobalization is going to take place, at least between China and the rest of the world. What we need to do is hold together Western globalization, because in the end, that's what's going to defeat them. Uh, okay, the can, last one. I'll put, put you on the spot here. The can is, okay, free trade is good. TPP was something that, you know, the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership yeah. trade deal that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump famously yeah. opposed. You're saying China, we're going to pull out, but then we got to pull in our partners, friends, allies into trade agreement. Would we have a, a TPP? Yeah, I mean, look, I, you can't defeat something with nothing. In, in the case of China, we failed to counter mm. uh, what we didn't like about that we had a trans, you know, Pacific uh, agreement right. in the works. And um, when, when I mean, we pushed that, um, uh, but, but then suddenly pulled back from it. You need to offer something to compete with the Chinese because they're now obviously trying to set up relationships that are more in line with their, uh, the nature of their system. Uh, so you, you need to do that. Um, you also need to, I think, Look, make some sensible decisions domestically. Reagan always believed that you can't do anything internationally, either economic or military, unless your domestic economy is functioning properly. Yep. And we're facing some very, very difficult times, I think, well, in the context of our— Inflation, 8.5%, that, 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 that needs to be addressed. Get that straightened out. Make sure your domestic economy is buoyant. And then work with allies and unravel your ties with the look. The Chinese and the and the Russians have made their decision. They want a different kind of world. Okay, let's go. In some sense, we can welcome that challenge and say, okay, let's. Uh, and by the way, in order to achieve that peacefully, that is, in order to have that competition peacefully, we need to check and balance some. All right. Militarily. All right. Well, we got the advice here from Henry now. Let's go into the lightning round. Henry, share with us your favorite book on President Reagan. I have so many of them. <laughs> I'll take the rest of the afternoon. But let, let me get one here for the yeah, lightning round. Well, I mean, I love the two-volume uh, history, by the way, that Steve Hayward has done. I mean, that's a, that's an enormous contribution. Uh, similarly, a two-volume, uh, especially the later editions of Lou Cannon's books about Reagan. Uh, oh, there have been some other, so many good ones. Paul Kangor really does the best work I know of on Reagan and his faith, mm -hmm. and to what extent that influenced the way he uh, operated. Uh, uh, Craig Shirley, who's done magnificent books on Reagan, the campaigner. And boy, do we need that now, see, mm -hmm. because it's in the campaign where you bring all these groups together and, and you, you, you establish that right, well, derivative philosophy. In a lightning round, you got three. We're moving on from books. Give us your favorite uh, Reagan speech. I know you've gone back and pulled speeches that people are less familiar with. What, which one stands out in your mind? Yeah, I think the Westminster speech does, because it was also given at a time when things were pretty dark. 
So you have to read that speech, understanding most people were saying, my God, what's he talking what's he about? Talking? This world is going to hell in a handbasket. And, and yet he gave that speech. And if you look back at it now, that speech sort of more or less predicted exactly. The June of 1982. And then he saw the, the impact of the freedom yeah. agenda. Yeah, And you've done some great work here at the oh, Institute on that uh, speech. It's online, by the way, folks. There we go. Some promotion there of, uh, of Reagan Institute content. Thank you, Harry. All right. And now let's look at the uh, favorite Reagan quote. What do you got? Ah, favorite Reagan quote. Well, there tell you what, here it is. It's a paraphrase of a Jefferson quote. And, you know, hmm. Reagan quoted Jefferson five times more than he did Hamilton. So it shows you how he would differ to some extent, all right, from the Hamilton, Hamiltonian. Although I'm told Not, he quoted Lincoln more than any other president. Well, um, no, I'm, this is just a comparison between oh, Jefferson and Hamilton. Hamilton. Okay. Five times more Jefferson. And here's what Jefferson said in his inaugural address uh, about uh, the role of the individual. He said this in his first inaugural, right? If they, meaning the people of the world, are incapable of self-government, as some would have us believe, then where is the world, where in the world do we find people who are capable of governing others? Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can't govern others until you govern yourself. And so the idea of a self of a self-governing republic is you start with the individual. You don't stop there. But you move beyond it. And it seems to me that's the heart and root of, of American politics. This is what the Declaration and what the Con Declaration gives us the rights. The Constitution protects those rights. And it's all for the individual, who, by the way, are equal, right? Regardless of race, color, creed, what have you. And boy, that's the, that's the apple of gold, it seems to me, as one of my colleagues once called it, the, not, not making exactly the same argument <laughs> that I'm making. But nevertheless, uh, that is the bedrock of the American um, um, dream. And it's the, um, you know, for, for Reagan, and I think it's the conservative image of America, conservative, classical conservative image of America. Dr. Henry Now, thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.